for everyone else, uh, please keep your Bibles open at that uh, last passage, Galatians 2. Uh, it might be helpful uh, just to remember uh, that uh, in the Bible, justification is basically a way of saying we're declared right in the sight of God. It just might be helpful to remember that if you, you don't know that already. Uh, let me lead us uh, briefly in prayer as we uh, come to this part of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your servant, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the churches in Galatia and that uh, you saw fit to preserve it so that we could learn uh, uh, how it is uh, that we are saved uh, simply through faith in Jesus Christ alone and the implications of that uh, for our lives uh, individually and also as a church. Please help us uh, to listen carefully to your word, to delight in it, to obey it, uh, to be uh, happy to be uh, both corrected by it and encouraged by it. And we uh, ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It is not uncommon for Christians uh, in a one-to-one setting to ask one another how they're going spiritually. That is, how they're going in their Christian lives. Uh, loving and serving Jesus, uh, whether that's proving difficult or uh, rewarding in certain areas. Next slide, please. The Bible often uses the term to walk to mean to live in obedience to Christ. The Christian life is the Christian walk. Uh, On Monday and Friday of this week just past, I had two different ministers from different churches asking me about how my walk with Jesus was going out. They didn't use that actual term, but that was uh, basically what they were doing. Uh, It's a great thing to do, and I uh, suspect that, uh, generally speaking, uh, Christian men aren't as good as doing this with one another as uh, Christian women probably are. But if you're anything like me, when another Christian asks you how your relationship with God is going, often the first thought, and uh, almost always the first feeling I get, is that whatever the answer is... I could be doing better. I'm not praying as much as I should be. I'm not reading my Bible as much as I should be. I'm not trusting God's sovereign plan as much as I should be. I'm not loving my church family as much as I should be. I'm definitely not loving my enemies as much as I should be. I'm not evangelizing as much as I should be. I'm not attending church as much as I should be. And Some of the things that I am doing or thinking or saying, well, frankly, they are sinful. That initial feeling, that first gut reaction that no matter how good I'm going at living for Jesus, I could be doing better. Well, that's both a really good thought and a really bad thought. I'll start with why it's really good. It's really good because this side of Jesus' return, there is always room for Christians to improve. We live in a fallen world. We struggle with our old selves, the sinful nature. Perseverance and patience and character building are all essential features of the Christian life here and now. But it's also really bad that the first thought I have is that I could be doing better. It's not because Jesus has made me perfect and and holy in God's sight. That is the case. He has done that. But that's not the reason I shouldn't always feel like I I can do better. It's more subtle than that. The reason I think it's bad that my first thought about my Christian walk is I need to do better is 
Well, let's look carefully at this passage from Galatians 2 before I attempt to finish that answer. Our passage begins with a very sharp conflict. Verse 11, it'll come up on the slide. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Well, there's a start for a passage, isn't there? Not long before this, a number of Jewish believers had fled to Antioch and had begun, naturally, as as believers, preaching the gospel, uh, such that a Jewish church began to emerge. But the Gentiles in that area, Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people, they also started to hear the message and put their faith in Jesus too. And it may be the case that Cephas, who we probably know more commonly as the Apostle Peter, went there to help that church to grow and develop, especially because he himself had had experience, just a little bit of experience with Gentiles becoming Christians. Now, that sounds all like something that the Apostle Paul would absolutely love. He should be 100% on board with. So why would there be such a sharp conflict between uh, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter? Well, verse 12 gives us the reason. For before certain men came from James, he, that is Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Now, we know from elsewhere in the Bible that this circumcision group were Jews who insisted that Gentiles are saved not just by trusting in Jesus as as Lord and Saviour, but that they also needed to obey the Jewish laws and traditions. And the sign that you're one of those people who are under the Jewish laws is that your males are circumcised. So it's not just faith in Jesus, not putting your trust in Jesus and saying he's my Lord and my Saviour. It's that plus this other thing that you must do in order to be saved. Now there's actually nothing wrong with circumcision. There's nothing wrong with living under the law of Moses. It's when you rely on that. It's when you insist that that is a requirement for being rescued from the wrath to come. That's when it becomes a false teaching. It's when you try to be justified by keeping the commandments in the Old Testament law that you become estranged from Jesus and you fall away from grace. As a matter of fact, when you rely on any kind of good works or any kind of religious observances to make you acceptable in God's sight, you've effectively rubbished the work that Jesus did on your behalf. Now, even though this circumcision group came from James, the the head apostle in Jerusalem, we know from elsewhere in the Bible that they did not have the support and the endorsement of those Jerusalem apostles. And at best, their false teaching would have created two classes of Christians. Uh, The Jews were the top class who were more closer to God and more spiritual because they had all the the, the religious observances. and And the Gentiles, well, they would have come in second. At worst, their false teaching would have implied that Gentiles weren't saved at all unless they also became Jews. 
Now, what are the many ways that humanity, almost, if not completely across the board, expresses its sinfulness, is that instead of evaluating ourselves by God's standards, and we always fall into this, we always we reject God and then evaluate ourselves by the standards of humanity, by the standards of one another. So when one group of people seem more impressive than the group you're associated with, the natural desire is to level up. The photos of me on my Facebook or Instagram feed need to be me surrounded by cooler people than your photos and the people you're surrounded with on your Instagram feed. And that's because I fear deep down how other humans evaluate me more than I fear how God evaluates me. It says Peter withdrew from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belong to the circumcision group. Fearing the assessment of other people more than fearing the assessment of God is a common feature of all sinful humanity. And so it's no surprise that it wasn't just Peter who uh, separated himself from the Gentiles. Verse 13, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. The pressure was so great that even Barnabas succumb to it and as an aside that's why being a a Christian leader of which many of us are in different circles that's why being a Christian leader is a dangerous job if you give yourself in if you give in yourself to, to sinful temptation you always run the risk of bringing other people along with you when you do it Now, why is Paul so strongly opposed to what Peter did here? If it's just succumbing to social pressure, well, that's bad, but you know, but this seems worse than that. Paul's really angry. And why should we actually also be outraged at what Peter has done here? Well, it's because what Peter was doing was actually pointing away from the truth of the gospel. And the gospel matters so much that it needs to regulate not just what we think and feel, but even how we act. Verse 14 makes it clear. Uh, Paul says, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Kephas in front of them all, You're a Jew, and yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Paul's saying to Peter, Hey, mate, Not even you can successfully keep the law of Moses and our Jewish traditions, yet by your actions, you're suggesting that Gentiles, who who don't even have the law of Moses, they need to start keeping it if they want to be fully-fledged members of God's kingdom. What a blatant hypocrisy. And what makes it even worse is that Peter himself knew full well that the gospel message itself makes it perfectly clear that whether Jew or Gentile, all Christians stand in a right relationship with God only on the simple basis of faith in Jesus Christ, not on the basis of how well they may keep Old Testament laws. Verse 15, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, we know, verse 16, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. 
To paraphrase that, Paul is saying to Peter, we Jews know that you can't keep the righteous requirements of the law. It's impossible. Jesus has done that all for us. And by trusting in him, God counts us as righteous. He declares us as righteous in his sight. Just like he counts those sinful Gentiles righteous on account of their faith in Christ. Now, I do feel a level of sympathy toward Peter. I think we all do. I think Peter's a very lovable um, apostle because he stuffs up so much and we can all relate. (laughs) It may be the case that Peter was still coming to terms with the fact that justification is by faith alone. If all his life he had eaten only food that was permitted under the Old Testament law, if all his life he'd worn only clothes that were permitted under the Old Testament law, if all his life he had ceased work every Sabbath, if all his life he had memorised scriptures from the Old Testament, if all his life he had had morning set prayers and evening set prayers as the Jews would do, well then I can understand why it must be hard to imagine that those sinful Gentiles who had done none of those things were now no less righteous in the sight of God than what he was because Jesus had done absolutely everything necessary to make them righteous before God. I can understand that that would be tough. And I can understand his attitude. He must have been thinking to himself, if we really are justified by nothing at all except our faith in Jesus, then I'm now exactly on the same level as those sinful Gentiles who have put their faith in Jesus. Surely that can't be right. The true God wouldn't justify Jews in a way that made them no better than those dirty, sinful, unclean Gentiles. To which the basic answer is, actually, yes, he would. Verse 17, Paul says, he articulates Peter's mind, I think, verse 17, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, i.e. the Gentiles, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? And then in his very sophisticated academic and verbose response, Paul says, absolutely not. If Jews are justified in exactly the same way as Gentiles, all it shows them is that they are just as sinful as Gentiles and therefore they ought to be just as thankful that Jesus has paid the penalty for their sinfulness. It's no problem to find yourself eating with unclean people. It shows you that Jesus is as gracious to you as he had been to them. And that was how Jesus conducted his ministry, eating with the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners. The real problem would be that if you wanted to feel superior to those other Christians so that you're tempted to go back to the old way of trying to please God by relying on the Old Testament law. Verse 18, if I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Now, I want to take a minute to um, 
to show you why this is actually a really brutal comment from the Apostle Paul. Once upon a time, God's people Israel, and, and Peter would have known this, right? Once upon a time, God's people Israel were trying to enter, enter the promised land, the beautiful promised land, the land of milk and honey that God had, had promised them. But there was this fortified city that stood in the way, an impenetrable barrier. And of course, that city was uh, Jericho, and the Israelites, they had no hope of destroying it. Yet the Israelites did destroy Jericho. Because God himself did a miraculous work. He made the Israelites march around the city blowing trumpets instead of attacking the city using swords just so they could see that without a doubt it was God who did the miraculous work of smashing the thing to bits and he handed Israel their victory on a platter. The leader of the Israelites at that time was a guy named Joshua and he wanted to ensure that Israel always remembered that God had enabled the victory. He wanted to make sure that Jericho always lay in ruins so that the future generations could look and they would remember that they destroyed the impossible-to-destroy city. Why? Well, because of God's miraculous work. So Joshua swore an oath that if anyone tried to rebuild that city, it would only happen at the cost of the lives of some of their children. It was that important that the Israelites recognised that God got the credit. They took the city. Why? Because... God miraculously enabled it. So if an Israelite one day came along and rebuilt what had been destroyed, it would be like they were taking credit away from God and and giving it to themselves. And that would be a dreadfully sinful thing to do. And, well, that's what Paul is accusing Peter of here. If you rebuild what you destroyed, then you really would be, be taking the credit for yourself. You wouldn't be giving it to God. Seeking to be justified under the law is as a system, it's like the city of Jericho. It was destroyed by those who acted in obedience to God and God ultimately did all the work to that. Why do you want to build it up again? Verse 19, we get a sense of the destruction. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. So if you tried to rebuild the old law system, well, presumably you'd no longer be living for God. And then Paul gives us even a greater motivation for viewing all Christians as being on the exact same spiritual level. There's a striking spiritual reality. It kind of sits above everything we've been looking at so far, right? It's deeper. This is when we go deeper. There's a striking spiritual reality that has taken place in the soul of every believer, whether Jew or Gentile. For all who trust in Jesus, he unites himself with them and to them. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's the spiritual reality that all Christians enjoy, and it's the same for Jew and Gentile. You're dead, you're resurrected. This is why Christians are also motivated to do the good works that God has prepared for us to do. Not because we want to earn our way into his presence or become super spiritual, but because God has already made himself present with us. Christ lives in me. Uh, Our very nature has been changed such that we now desire to do good. 
and to honour God. We now begin to despise and hate the residual sinfulness that we still experience in this life. I don't need to be in with a supposedly super spiritual crowd in order to get closer to God. No, no, no. I'm already as close to God as I can be. Jesus Christ lives in me and any Christian that is true of. This means I'm actually free and able to love and associate with those who I otherwise might have nothing to do with because they eat different food to me and wear different clothes to me. Well, that doesn't matter because Jesus Christ lives in me and Jesus Christ lives in them too. We ought to feel so privileged that this is our circumstance, this is our situation. So much so that just like the Apostle Paul, we ought to be absolutely appalled and disgusted when the grace of God is clearly being compromised. Verse 21 I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, well, Christ died for nothing. We want to rubbish Jesus like that? Of course not. If you think that doing religious things or being a religious person or being a good moral person puts you in God's good books, then basically you're rubbishing the death of Jesus. Even wanting to be seen to associate with people who do that out of fear of what they'll think of you if you don't is so serious that the Apostle Paul would give it a public rebuke in front of everyone, he would stand up to that. And so there are three basic implications of this lesson that I think we need to consider. First of all, it clearly warns us of a danger, which I'll articulate in just a moment, but it gives us an amazing comfort which I look forward to sharing with you. And it urges us in a certain direction. First of all, we'll start with a danger. One way that we risk compromising the truth of the gospel is not by wanting to get circumcised. I've yet to have someone come up to me and say, Ben, I'm really keen to get circumcised and obey the law of Moses. Right? That's not our temptation to try and please God by being spiritual, right? But it is by seeking to achieve greater closeness to God through various spiritual practices. I see a lot of this around. If you meditate on this in such a way or if you uh, uh, seek the small, still voice of God in such a way, you're going to get greater closeness to God. Uh, it may be that the, uh, the, the singing congregationally have a big time. Well, that means the Holy Spirit's really now here with us and therefore we are closer to God because we've concocted this kind of event or this, uh, we've done this method of something that means we're now getting... There's nothing wrong with having a greater active awareness that Christ is in us and we're in him. There's nothing wrong with hoping that your emotions become more closely aligned with your belief. As a matter of fact, I hope that sort of happens over the, the, the you know, periods of, of living for, for Jesus, that you are more aware emotionally of your closeness to God. I hope that's the case. But there is a lot of teaching out there that seems to imply that certain spiritual disciplines can make you closer to God than you already are, which, of course, takes away from what Christ has done to get you there. And starts making about what you do to get you there rather than what he has done. And that's not okay. Paul would publicly rebuke that sort of thing. Be careful 
Exercise great discernment when you're hearing someone claim that by doing this or that, you're becoming closer to God than you already are. Christ is in you. How much closer can you get? The right alternative to that sort of thing is that simply, and it is simple, simply through prayerful reading of the scriptures, which is where God speaks, we come to greater and greater realisation about what it means that we're already seated with Christ in heaven. Not through spiritual means or or religious observances, simply through, well, reading the the scriptures. That's where the, the, the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. But secondly, I think we have a great comfort available to us uh, from this uh, passage. Ironic as it sounds, Paul's confrontation with Peter is actually cause for great comfort for all Christians because it puts us all ultimately on the same spiritual level. And when someone asks you how your Christian walk is going and your first thought and feeling is that guilt that comes from telling yourself over and over that, well, I'm not as good as I could be. I'm not as spiritual as those other Christians. I'm need to be doing better. Well, then just consider how comforting it is to know that because we are justified in the same way, we're all connected to God in the same way. There is a a spectrum, okay? There is a spectrum of what you might call Christian maturity. We know that because God's doing progressive work in our life, right? There is a spectrum of how well-versed we can be in the Bible, There is also a spectrum of how well shaped your Christian character is. And by the way, if you're undergoing a long time of suffering or difficulty or hardship, uh, take heart because that's actually one of the most obvious and common ways that God is bringing his children to maturity. There are differences. But the fundamental situation for any and every person who has their faith in Jesus as Lord and Saviour is that they are as close to God as they can possibly be. You've all been crucified with Christ. If you trust in him, you no longer live, but Jesus Christ lives in you. The life we live in the body is in a state of growth and progression, and we're all at different points along the way, sure. But your fundamental and my fundamental situation is that we are no more or less spiritual than one another. We're each as close to God as we can possibly be, Jesus Christ lives in us. There's a certain freedom. There's a certain freedom and a certain peace that comes when all hope of dignity and social acceptance is completely and utterly destroyed. When we appreciate that we're we're as good as crucified with Christ and that we are now therefore living sacrifices, a fitting expression of our ongoing attitude comes in the form of Jesus' words on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That becomes... Uh, the voice of our attitude. And that's the reason for the exhortation, the final exhortation I'll give that I think arises out of this passage. Stop saying to yourself, I'm not as mature or as spiritual or as biblically literate or as close to God as those other Christians around me. Start to banish that thought and that feeling. Start thanking God. Let that be the starting point. Start thanking God that Jesus Christ lives in you, just like he lives in those other Christians. And then in your overwhelming sense of gratitude, simply get on with growing in your knowledge and love of him without comparing yourself unhelpfully to anyone else. Justification by faith alone 
means all Christians are as close to God as each other. And it means that our walk is not about trying to get on better terms with God, which only ever creates division in the church, but about coming to terms with what Jesus has done to get us there already. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can't help but thank and praise you that in your incredible love and mercy, uh, that you've done absolutely everything that is required to take us from out of the realm of death and sin and bring us into the kingdom of Jesus, to seat us with him in the heavenly places, for him to come and live in us and we to live in him uh, as your children. Father, we... Uh, pray that like Paul we would be as passionately against anything that would rob you of your glory by taking away from this wonderful truth. Father, may our lives become more and more grace-shaped, not only our personal lives, Father, but the way we view one another. Uh, Different though we all may be, may we see Christ in them just as they will see Christ in in us and may that form the basis of our fellowship and we pray these things in Jesus name amen